Welcome to episode number 48 for the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. With recent rulings on wetlands classifications for landowners, questions keep coming in about environmental impact regulations and permits. Today, we're talking with experts on the topic, James Mason and Wade Biltoff from Three Oaks Engineering out of North Carolina and South Carolina. James and Wade's work with Three Oaks Engineering gives them the insight on possible complications that come with environmental regulations on private land and how to deal with those complications. They are here to tell us steps that we can make to make sure that our land improvements go as smoothly as possible. Now sit back and enjoy. All right, cool. I am sitting here with Wade Biltoft and James Mason with Three Oaks Engineering. Three Oaks Engineering is based out of North Carolina and South Carolina. And uh, I wanna give the two of you a chance to sort of talk about what you do and how you got to where you are with this company. And then we can kind of kick off and, and then go into the conversation at large and, and sort of talk about what Three Oaks Engineering does and, and sort of how that applies to landowners today. Uh, Wade, I'm gonna pick on you first, man. How did you get with Three Oaks and, uh, and what do you do there? Thanks, Mac. Uh, so I went to college for undergrad and graduate school at the University of South Carolina. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree in environmental science and a master's in earth and environmental resource management. And a friend of mine that I'd met in the graduate program finished a year ahead of me and got hired by three Oaks, uh, Shelby Moody. And so when I graduated, I, you know, environment's like a broad, but very vague field when you aren't knee deep in it. So, uh, I'd reach out to her and had asked, you know, what was three Oaks like, like what was the consulting world like and if she enjoyed it and, they just happen to be uh, have some more work opening up and we're looking for a new scientist to come on board. And so I just got lucky there. And in a few weeks, I'll be coming up on five years with the company right out of school. Oh, wow. And what, what is it? You, I mean, you, you mentioned you're obviously doing, you know, science with them and then, but like expand on that a little bit. What do you do at three Oaks on a day to day? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I'm a professional wetland scientist. Um, so the the bulk of my work is doing wetland and stream delineations and permit packages for our various clients. Uh, I also do a lot of protected species surveys for habitat for federally endangered and threatened species. And, um, also do some construction, uh, compliance inspections for erosion control on a lot of roadway projects. And that's pretty much the the broad view of it. Gotcha. And thank you for that, Wade. And James, I'm going to throw to throw you into the mix now. All right, sure. Thanks, Mac. Um, I've got a little bit more time on me than Wade does. Uh, so my, my um, story starts in the early 2000s. Uh, I came down to North Carolina to go to uh, graduate school at UNC Charlotte. Um, and after I graduated, I got a job with the North Carolina Department of Transportation uh, doing their natural resources work. Same thing that I do at Three Oaks, where we did wetland delineations, environmental permitting, protected species surveys. I came on with Three Oaks about five years ago as well. Um, and currently, uh, I am a professional wetland science, but scientist, but I currently lead our uh, natural resources group and environmental permitting group uh, in the North Carolina offices. Gotcha. Thank you for that, James. Um, so, yeah. So, and I'm just, 
I'm either one of you jump in now, as far as when I, when I throw questions at you, I don't want to have to pick on either one of you at, the, at any given time. So tell me a little bit about three Oaks and, and just exactly what three Oaks engineering is. And then just from a bottom level up, and, it, and this is for anybody that has not worked with sort of a company such as yours that does, that does engineering, that does permitting, that does, you know, environmental science that, it, that sort of engages with landowners that way. Uh, tell me a little bit about the company and the company history. Uh, sure, uh, I can uh, start with that. Uh, so Three Oaks uh, has been around for about 10 years now. Um, we've been doing uh, environmental services uh, for about the last eight years. Uh, it's a small to medium uh, sized uh, women, uh, woman owned business uh, that was started by Suzanne Young uh, and she's our president of the company. Um, our main office is in Durham, North Carolina, uh, but we do also have offices in Raleigh and uh, in Casey, South Carolina, uh, just outside of Columbia. Uh, our primary focus is uh, working with uh, transportation uh, in terms of um, our engineering side, uh, but we do also have extensive experience working in the commercial and residential development realm. Um, our planners kind of work on uh, environmental documents that are required for projects that have state or federal funding. Uh, but we also have hydraulic engineers, uh, traffic engineers that work in both um, transportation and uh, development. And then we also, of course, have our large um, wetland and stream delineation and protected species surveys group. Uh, and we cover a whole suite of doing plant surveys. Um, we have uh, permitted aquatic biologists in both North and South Carolina and bat biologists that can handle all um, different uh fauna that are required for um having surveys for a project gotcha and so so a little bit of a breakdown might be helpful as far as the difference of you spoke to a few things here you spoke to working with roads and sort of the environmental impact of roads and what i'm guessing what we're talking about there is one's road stability but two impact on surrounding water sources as far as maybe dust on dirt roads or maybe chemicals or i mean you, I'm taking shots in the dark here, but you know, as far as the difference between like what you do in, in a situation where you're working with roads and a situation where you're working with commercial and a situation where you're working with residential, if you could break that down a little bit for, for people to understand sort of how you guys approach this. Uh, sure. Yeah. So the, the main thing that we're looking about, especially when you're looking at impacts to wetlands and streams and protected species is, um, we're looking at um, impacts in terms of fill or adding culverts or bridges uh, that impact jurisdictional uh, features and also any impacts that those structures or any development has on protected species habitat. It's kind of the same approach with both transportation and development projects um, where we're looking at the same types of potential impacts or similar potential impacts and kind of ways to avoid and minimize those types of impacts to make the project as environmentally friendly as it possibly can be. Gotcha. Okay. So and I was, I was speaking, I've worked with some conservation outfits out here in Idaho before it like one of the big concerns is dust from roads on the streams and stuff like that, that they end up getting that, but you're dealing with different things out there as far as you're going holistically, you're going water channels, how the culverts are set up, um, those kind of things. What, what sort of is, is when do you get called into the picture? You, you mentioned before we were kind of chatting before we started the conversation, you mentioned, that you usually don't start in a phase one situation. Um, tell me a little bit about sort of the, the standard phases that you work with. And, and this is where 
This is where somebody is looking at developing something on a piece of land, could be a road, could be a commercial, uh, you know, a commercial construction, could be a residential sort of design. But you said you kind of go about the process the same. When does somebody look at calling an organization like yours and and sort of how do you perform what you do? Uh, Wade, do you want to start with that one? Yeah. Uh, so really what, what triggers our services is uh, the jurisdiction of wetlands and streams of the United States or waters of the United States that are given uh, jurisdiction to the Army Corps of Engineers by the Clean Water Act. It's a little jargony, but not not too bad. And, uh, but, you know, to say that that's the same law throughout the land, whether it's private development or a government agency's development, like a DOT. Um, so if, if a project that's being proposed is to encroach or uh, directly impact, uh, wetlands or stream boundaries that are deemed to be jurisdictional under the, the law of the land, then what we can do is come in and map out those jurisdictional boundaries um, and that then could be incorporated into the design elements of the project that's being proposed. So, you know, if you're not sure if there's wetlands on the property or if you know there are some, but you're trying to, you know, tweak a design for a, a housing development or a roadway, uh, you know, you, it's helpful to know where those limits are so that you can avoid and minimize, as Jim had said. And uh, just, you know, and so I guess where we come in is to help find that. Um, we coordinate with the agencies directly that, you know, may have more questions about the project. And we kind of, you know, go to bat for the client on that just to kind of be the facilitator between being a good steward of the land and uh, allowing progress and development to continue. Gotcha. And so you both have used the word delineation a few times, and that's not common jargon in my world. But from my understanding of the word, it's it's outlining the specifics of what it is and where it ends. Right. And so when you're talking about a stream or a wetlands, are you defining the, the boundary at which there's minimal impact? Is that sort of what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. That, oh, sorry, Wade, you go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's more of the boundary, you know, where does the wetland begin and the upland dry land, you know, and, uh, and there's a prescribed method for that that's given to us by the Army Corps of Engineers, thankfully, to help us, you know, find this line. So uh, it's, it's a three parameter approach. Uh, you evaluate the hydrology or, you know, is there water present or not and in, in what ways um, the vegetation of the area, uh, you know, is the the area being subjected to the hydrology giving way to water loving plants, or is it only plants that occur in, you know, dry mountainy habitats occurring here? And then the third being the soils, which kind of, you know, ties the other two together uh, and has a lot of chemistry involved in how you determine whether the soils meet what would be determined a hydric or a wetland soil. And so wherever all three of those line up, you know, your, your best uh, judgment, you, hang a flag and you kind of connect the dots around the limit on the property of where these features are. Yeah. And to follow up on what Wade was saying, um, that those parameters were kind of outlined based on the 1987, uh, wetland delineation manual that the army Corps of engineers, and that's kind of a nationwide guidance in the past 10 years or so, um, maybe a little bit earlier than that regional supplements have also been developed that kind of cater to the specific regions of the country. So there's a little bit, um, more fine tuning, um, depending on where you are in the United States, 
uh, about what exactly you're looking at for those three parameters. There's just some variability, but it all comes back down to the, the standard three parameters and that basic uh, delineation, me delineation methodology. Gotcha. And, and so as, as you're going through this and, and as I'm coming to understand, because a lot of this is new to me, I'm kind of diving in here and did some deep dives this week to be like, okay, I don't want to sound like a total bonehead when I'm talking to you guys. But so I did my best and I'm going to do my best to, to not pull off boneheadedness as I'm going along, but I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Uh, when, when somebody has like, let's say, let's take a landowner where they're looking to either sell for commercial use or they're, or maybe they're, maybe they're already going through the process. And then, and then you come in as part of permitting to open up sort of a commercial investor to say, okay, yeah, you can build this here. Or because we've done, we've done some episodes on this stuff um, as far as the, the process, if you're a landowner looking to sell a commercial, you'll usually go through a permitting process before you actually get to sell. And it usually falls down. What I'm guessing is an, an outfit like yours to say, yeah, it's okay. Or no, you need to do some things. There's water here and stuff. But for, for landowners, what is the importance of designating and, and maybe go into what the definition of a wetland is or the definition of a stream sort of what's the importance of those things to the landowner? And it's kind of self-apparent, but I want to make sure we cover it. Yeah, sure. Um, so to back up just a little bit, kind of to talk about what you initially were um, uh, talking about. So we see it kind of in both ways where a landowner that's looking to sell will um, get these types of delineations done ahead of time. So they know what kind of like usable land is available on the property that they're trying to sell. And if they want to set the property up for any type of development, they might want to put their driveways in or utilities in ahead of time. So they'll go through the whole process ahead of time to set up the, the parcel to make it ready to develop. On the other side, we will see people that are interested in purchasing properties that will go into the due diligence period um, during the, the pre-sale phase. Um, I've seen it anywhere between 30 and 60 days. And a lot of times those potential buyers will take the opportunity to do the delineations and um, look for wetlands and streams and protected species ahead of time before they make the purchase. So I've, we, we see it in both ways. I think from a landowner that's looking to sell, uh, the importance is just to, again, to know what kind of usable land um, that you have available to you uh, to sell on the property. Um, although it can be permitted, it's not ideal to build in wetlands or to, to build or put culverts and streams if you can avoid it because you have to go through the permitting process and it does open up a little bit of a can of worms so to speak because once you know that you have a federal permit from the army corps of engineers um and that's required for a project then that opens up you need to follow section seven of the endangered species act to make sure all your species um, are taken care of and that opens up more of a financial and time commitment in order to get all that stuff secured for your your property so it's good to know what you have available to you um if it's a smaller parcel that um, isn't going to be connected to say municipal sewer or water and you have to do septic or um, a well, uh, wetlands aren't particularly amenable to putting in those types of structures. Um, and so it could modify how you um, approach developing that, that parcel if it's a small or private landowner. Uh, for the per people buying, it's the same thing, but <laughs> um, just on the opposite side where you just want to know what you can do with the property and just what your limits are and um, how it's gonna affect uh, your development of, of the property that you're purchasing. 
Yeah. So, so, and can I want to one, thank you. And, and two, so what defines a wetland and, and, you know, what's the designation? Like what, I mean, obviously it's wet, right? So, but I mean, it, I'm, I'm assuming that you have a much more clinical definition of what that is, or a much more specific definition of what that is. So the people that, that have one or might have one, you know, would know to cue in on that. Yeah. Wait, if you want to start with that one. Yeah. So, you know, to kind of reflect back at the the three parameters we discussed that you use to delineate it. So that's kind of your starting point for understanding what exactly a wetland is uh, in, in federal legal terms. So if you have an area where, you know, for, for whatever reason, water gathers or collects and is held for a period of time throughout the year, uh, those vegetation, soil and hydrology parameters uh, may become present. And the wetland itself uh, is kind of declared as a water of the United States if it has a surface or some sort of ecological connection to a stream or a channel that may then connect to a traditionally navigable water um, is the is all over in the, the legal definition of this stuff. So that's kind of how this um, jurisdiction comes about, right? So the it started with the Rivers and Harbors Act of 18-something that gave the Department of Defense jurisdiction over the harbors and rivers for military and commerce purposes. And so how that kind of grew into wetland areas is, you know, impacts to wetlands and smaller tributaries that go into the navigable waters can hinder uh, the commerce and defense abilities in our navigable waterways. Um, so uh, with this, you know, the wetland talk, it's, 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 if you're asking about the legal wetland or if you're asking about the ecological wetland, sometimes they can be a little different, but they're mostly the same. But uh, as far as landowners concerns would lie, it would be meeting those three parameters as prescribed in uh, the 87 manual. And then the uh, nexus and connection to our navigable waterways is what drives the jurisdiction uh, from the federal side. I hope that yeah. clears it up some. No, it does. It does. And, and then, and James, when you were talking to it, it was queuing me in on, we, we had done, we, we did an episode in, in the past with one of our, our land brokers that's in a lot of development. And he sort of was giving his best tips on sort of how, what to do if you really do want to sell your property and you want to get it, like nobody wants to be selling something for four years because land, land sales can go that long. And and just how to prep it for a good deal. And so you have minimal pushback when you actually do go to sale. And one of his biggest, and this is Nick Artis, one of our agents, uh, and well, brokers actually. Um, but so as he was talking through it, he was saying the best use or best thing that you could do is come up with a access roads, you, you know, develop those, get those to go through the property, especially if you're talking about large acreage, having access roads set up in, in a way that gets people around the property in, in the most efficient way possible. And then also establishing your building sites where those are possible. That's sort of where you all play into this, right? Is your, you're letting people know like, yeah, you can't put a road here. This is a wetland or, or no, you can't, you need to establish either a culvert or go around this stream or just find a way to, to circumvent it. Um, how often does does that happen where you have to like kind of go in and, and just like add it like or or is are you an advisory or do you kind of put the rules down? Um, I'd say for potential developers or potential land sellers, we're 
we start as an advisory, um, in an advisory capacity, uh, where if they don't know what's there, sometimes you'll get a preliminary design and a preliminary driveway location. And we go out there and we find a wetland that's not quite amenable to that, uh, configuration. Um, we'll give suggestions on how to try to avoid it. Or, um, if they do need to cross that feature, whether it be a wetland or a stream, we kind of give them ideas about what would be the most successfully permittable um, design that would get a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers and whatever state agencies um, uh, would need to get permit. They need to get permits from as well because with the Section 404 the federal permit that the Army Corps of Engineers provides, there's a corresponding Section 401 state certification that goes with that. So each state kind of um, acts as an authority to issue that. Um, so you need both of those permits in a lot of cases. Um, so you got to meet the criteria and the requirements of both the federal and the state agencies. Um, so we go, we will allow, we will tell them, you know, whether or not we think something's going to run into issues with the permitting at the federal or state level and try to help them find. And in, in our realm, they deem it the least environmentally damaging practicable alternative. Uh, and so that's what the agencies are looking for. Um, just the, 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 the design and alternative that provides the least amount of environmental damage. Um, so we act as advisory in advisory capacity. Um, and then later on, we kind of help. I wouldn't say we were the ones that lay down the law, but we, when we, if we are assisting with the permitting aspects of a project, it becomes more of a rigid, like, no, you, you shouldn't be playing around with your design this far into the process. Cause it just, there's a recurring loop where you keep on having to go back if you keep on changing things. So, uh, it kind of evolves over, over the process. So there's, there's kind of two different parts of it. There's the, there's the part where you go in and you're like, yeah, you might not want to do this. I would suggest this. Then there's the part where you go in and be like, yeah, this is against the law and you can't do that. And you're not going to get your permit. Yes. Yeah. We definitely, we definitely outline what, what can and cannot be done. Just knowing that ahead of time is definitely valuable to whoever's trying to develop the property because um, you don't spend a lot of time uh, doing design um, on something that might not be able to be permitted. Yeah. And you mentioned, you mentioned the phases of like a development, uh, before. And so if I'm a, if I'm a landowner or I'm a, I'm a potential buyer, um, when would I know to bring in a team like yours or at what stage in the process would I want to bring you in and, and sort of what would be, what would be the thing that I'm looking for? So that, again, you guys are in North, North, South Carolina. If I'm in Florida, if I'm in Iowa, if I'm in Idaho, you know, what kind of services am I looking for? And, and when would I want to engage with you? Um, I think ideally you'd want to be bringing a company like us in as early as possible. Uh, just so, so you know where the wetlands and streams are. Um, it would be something while we don't do like the phase one uh, environmental site assessments ourselves or the surveying component, we work with a bunch of subcontractors that we can, group all that work together and work uh, as a team to get all that work done early on. And those are other um, components where that you'll have to have early on in the process anyway, like you'll need your boundary surveyed, your uh, topographic, um, the topography of the site surveyed. So we would ideally come in when those uh, types of um, jobs are being completed on the site. 
that's probably the best thing because we can work with those two groups in particular and kind of help um help each other move more um faster on the project and faster on the site yeah yeah oh sorry go ahead i was, gonna, I was gonna add so and to that uh some of the resources that are available to the public um you know when you're kind of weighing or you know say you're looking at a property on national land's website and you know you're curious about the wetlands or the stream potential on it and what issues you may run into uh i don't know about every listing, but I know a lot of listings on national land in particular have that wetlands layer that can be toggled on and off. What that pulls from is the national wetlands inventory. Uh, it's free to the public. It has its own mapping uh, tool online that you can Google and access. It's from the federal government where it's basically like a, a zoomed out best guess of where wetlands are likely to be in the United States based on known soil data, uh, floodway data, which is also available. FEMA has a lot of uh, publicly accessible floodway data. If you know, if you're curious about streams and floodplains on a property as well, but national wetlands inventory is, is what's used by national land and some other listing uh, companies to kind of give like, you know, here's the wetlands on the property. So there are resources out there that can kind of raise a flag to what you might be looking at. Um, but as we've seen on a lot of our other projects, sometimes there's wetlands where the wetlands, inventory tool doesn't show anything there or and vice versa where it'll say it's really wet and it's not so uh, there are publicly available free resources out there if you're kind of just given a cursory look at some some properties online and um but yeah if you know it's, and then also like if you ever go visit a site or walk it with an agent like nick then uh you know usually the agents are pretty knowledgeable of some of that stuff too if you have questions and you know, just some common sense. Like if you got a funny feeling about something like, why is this area so low and grassy or why did the, why did the ranger spin out back there <laughs> and not up on this nice dry road? So, you know, if, if any kind of stuff gives you concerns like that, there's public resources and, and then, you know, we're kind of there to help take it a step further. If you were to try to develop or pursue a property. You know, I'm so happy that you brought that up and it started doing my job for me as far as yeah. up, uh, our, our, our mapping <laughs> features. Because, yeah, we've put a ton of effort into bringing in federal databases for wetlands maps and as even soil composition maps throughout the United States. I think we have the, the data for every parcel in the United States currently existing. And so we try to keep that updated so that people can find that information. But as you pointed out, for, you know, I would I would say it's less common that people look at those maps and study those for for your boundaries and stuff. But I think people are more familiar with with apps like, you know, Onyx or something like that, where they're hiking. Right. Around. Not every trail that shows up on there is actually a trail. <laughs> so you do have to, like, verify from the ground and get some some expert, uh, some expert opinion. Um, I wanted to ask you both about. So not only do you go in and you do surveys and you, and you talked to it, James, uh, bringing in an engineering team like yours can be the whole solution so that you have sort of a consolidated solution by bringing in you subcontract other people to come in like your surveyors who are going to come in first and and things like that and then you sort of run the project from start to finish there's multiple places on your guys website that talk about mitigation which i think is sort of like a terrifying word tell me a little bit about what you look at when you're looking at something like mitigation and this is this is where like there's a problem and you got to fix it right and and so how do you how do you approach mitigation when it comes to wetlands or streams and and potential construction potential building potential roads 
Uh, I think the primary uh, goal um, in, in order to minimize the amount of mitigation that you would have to potentially pay for a project is to, to avoid uh, impacting jurisdictional features as much as possible. We don't ourselves um, provide mitigation or do on-site mitigation design. We do work with companies that do do that. Um, but our primary goal for a, a developer or potential uh, um, purchaser of a, of a property, uh, if they're looking to permit and they think they're um, going to impact wetlands and streams, um, they're, the federal government, based on the type of impact that you have for the Army Corps of Engineers, has like uh, mitigation limits um, for in thresholds for if you exceed that, you're going to be requiring mitigation on wetlands uh, and or streams. So it's kind of we use that as a baseline for the federal mitigation. Um, some states like uh, North Carolina, for instance, we have riparian buffer uh, programs in several watersheds. And if you have a certain type of impact or impact beyond a certain threshold, you have to mitigate for that on the state level as well. So we kind of help outline what those thresholds are and try to help a client minimize the impact so they don't have to pay. And this also comes back to, um, uh, kind of help trying to find that at least damaging alternative. Um, those are ways that we help try to minimize impacts to help minimize mitigation costs as well. Um, if, and on some projects, um, uh, it's unavoidable. Like you, ha you have a project in order to develop the land, you're going to have to uh, get a permit. You're going to have to mitigate for wetlands and or stream impacts. Uh, and at that point, we help facilitate like North Carolina, for instance, has an in lieu fee program um, that is run by the state where we can acquire mitigation credits. But there's also private mitigation banks that a client can go to uh, in order to get the mitigation credits to cover the impacts on their project so that we kind of help facilitate that process for them and help um, streamline it. Uh, so we can take care of that ourselves during the permitting process so they don't have to do anything other than approve what we're uh, acquiring. Gotcha. And then as far as as far as the actual performance of mitigation, is that something that you refer out? Do you bring so at the beginning of the process, right, your your team is capable of bringing in other contractors like, you know, I know a good surveyor. I'll run this project. You sort of run a consolidated invoice that way to where everybody kind of funnels through the same thing. Do you do the same thing? from the mitigation side, or are you strictly there to form the plan to avoid mitigation as much as possible and then let them sort of find somebody to do, perform the actual mitigation? Yeah, we're, we're more so helping uh, kind of set the plan and kind of figure out where they're going to acquire it. These, this, these in lieu fee programs and mitigation banks, their, their whole, um, what they do is they put aside land in other places, ideally in the same watershed as the project that you're working on, and they do the restorations themselves. And then they set a cost based on uh, the, the the average cost of uh, the work to how much they're going to charge per linear foot of stream credit that they're going to provide or per acre of wetland that they're going to provide. So they're kind of doing all of the, the heavy lifting when it comes to actually doing the restoration. We're just going to them in order to um, to access those credits to, to apply them to our project. And that makes it so landowners, um, if they don't want to, don't have to do on-site mitigation um, on their property um, to, to kind of, oh, sorry. They're just gonna pay for it then. <laughs> yeah. And so, they, so they're gonna, yeah, they're gonna pay for that. And a lot of times on-site mitigation is a little bit it's definitely worthwhile if you have the 
area to do it. It's just a very complicated and long, long process because you have to do monitoring and um, to for the success of the site to see if it turns into a wetland and stuff like that. So you, you get into a little bit of a longer process. So a lot of times going to a mitigation bank or going to like a state program if it's available is time-wise the most efficient way to do it. That's uh, it plays into it's very similar to carbon credits, right? Where it, there's even yep. even programs for landowners if they if they leave trees untouched on their property, they can get credit as a carbon offset, basically contributing to the bank the the other you know areas that don't have the opportunity to offset the carbon and basically buy the credit for what you have on your land. I'm guessing it works the same way, but it's, yep. it's a little more or, instead of just a basic landowner coming in and doing that which I'm guessing there is other programs that can do that as well. Uh, they can, you know, a landowner designating their land for that purpose to save for that opportunity. That's another opportunity for landowners is to provide the offset for carbon or wetlands that, that you're talking about, right? Uh, yes, it works in, this, in a very similar way. And, you know, we do see a lot of um, landowners who are, will either most of the time they'll sell to a company that specializes in restoration, um, but they'll use their they'll use these uh, properties that they have and um, uh, make them available for restoration um, and to provide areas for those credits. Like I said, a lot of times a company that specializes in that comes in and is the one that um, purchases the land and kind of takes ownership of it. Uh, but we definitely do see um, landowners um, sell their land for that specific purpose. Gotcha. And what is what is sort of the permitting process like when and I and I guess to back up there and, and we kind of covered this at the beginning, but I want to make sure it's really clear if, if I've got a piece of land or I'm looking to buy a piece of land, at what point do I need to get a permit? And, and you, I feel like it's also a self-apparent answer, but I want to give an opportunity to like clarify it. Absolutely. So there's no question coming out of here. Like if I got a chunk of land, I want to build a place on it. I want like whatever I'm doing with it, I'm building something on it and I'm probably going to have a road to get there. At what point do I do that as far as getting a, a, a permit and, and like, how do I engage with that? Uh, Wade, do you want to start with that? Yeah. Uh, I think it kind of plays into that, you know, that two phase approach where, you know, this service we're talking about is, well, you know, you identify the, the location and the boundaries of these features that would require, um, needing a permit to begin with. Um, and then from there it's, it's, it's a lot of cost benefit analysis of, you know, what, you know, what does it look like as far as the cost for me to acquire this permit and construct in a wet area versus what it will, you know, do to the value of your property by making it more accessible or more developed. So there's a lot of decision-making that has to go on between, you know, the consultant you're working with and the landowner. Um, but yeah, so, as far as if you're pursuing a permit and when you would go about doing that is, you know, when you've got kind of an idea of what you want to go uh, build and you want to push ahead with contacting the appropriate agencies being like uh, a state level uh, land disturbance permit, as well as the army Corps uh, 401 waters permit. So, you know, it, it, uh, trying to think you want to help <laughs> yeah kind of to go along with what wade was saying um that's basic the the most important time to consider getting your environmental permits acquired is when you're ready to when you know you've got a schedule set oops sorry 
I had a dog barking. Um, oh. So uh, the most, uh, the, the ideal time to, to start looking at when you're going to get your permits acquired is when you know what your schedule is and you know when you want to start grading the site and start uh, constructing anything like culverts or anything like that that um, is required for the site. Because uh, like uh, Wade had mentioned with like land disturbing permits that like the state require, state or municipal municipalities require or erosion control permits, a lot of those are tied together where one requires the other in order to get those approved. So those all kind of have to come together at a similar time in the process. Um, and it, it does depend on what type of permits you need. Um, if you're looking to get like, if you have minimal impacts that fall under the Army Corps of Engineers nationwide permits, um, it's usually about a 45 to 60 day process. But if you have a lot of impacts on a site and it goes to the individual permit level, it can take a significantly longer amount of time, four to six months. So knowing those impacts ahead of time and kind of coordinating with the developer and with the designers kind of knows when you need to start preparing your applications. And so you don't uh, lose any time in the schedule waiting for those to come in. Yeah, yeah a lot of that thing. is I, go sorry, ahead, wait. No, you go ahead. the part of the permitting process from the core side of things is, is going to be asking you those questions where it's like, well, what exactly are you going to be putting and where, and why is this what you're putting here and where, because, you know, to harken back to what Jim had mentioned earlier, um, that if you know, with changes that you make and uh, trying to find the least impactful alternative, you, you have to show the core you know, why this alternative that you're proposing and want to build is the least impactful one. And oftentimes they ask uh, for you to show, you know, like a, another alternative design or maybe a location of a building or a culvert that you considered and how that would be, how you, how the one you want is least impactful than those other options. So that's, you know, you, you want to have most of your decisions made and evaluated prior to pursuing the permit because they're going to kick it back to you and ask those same questions anyway. And their requirements go, they go above and beyond just simply wetland and stream impacts. When the Army Corps of Engineers does their review, um, they're looking at things, uh, like I was saying earlier, if you have a federal nexus where you're going to be impacting stream, you need a permit from them, they're going to be looking at things like Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act. They'll probably be looking at whether or not you have any historical or archaeological resources that may be on your site. Um, so those are all questions. If you know you're going down the route where you need an environmental permit from them, those are things that you also should probably start um, getting the information for and doing the surveys for um, when you're doing your wetland and stream delineations early on in the process, because you're going to need that information at the permitting phase. And having that available when you submit definitely expedites the process and makes it so they can check all of their boxes off and, and issue a permit uh, faster than if they have to keep on going back to you for more information. How often do you guys have to go into something that's already built and say no? Well, yeah, I, I don't think that's anything we really have encountered <laughs> much. It's, but, um, you know, I, I did want to kind of touch on, you know, the concern from landowners is like, well, one, how do you know that you need to do something? And oops, I've already done something. What's going to happen? <laughs> right. Uh, That's kind of where I was headed. It's like, how often does somebody do something? And they're like, uh Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it can, it can get as scary as you, as you want to make it when you look at uh, the kind of fines and enforcement actions that the army Corps of engineers can take on pr uh, private and, and it's government agencies, you know, they're all, 
kind of under the same rules. So all the same rules apply, but, uh, you know, it's, I don't really know the methods that the core uses to pinpoint like, Hey, something, you know, this wasn't here last year. You know, we know that there's wetlands here. Uh, so we're going to go check it out. It can be anything from say your property abuts a, a DOT road, like projects we work on a lot. There could be existing JDs that are active that the core has delineated wetlands in their system that they're aware of. And, um, you know, they could see that there's been a change or an impact to something that wasn't permitted by somebody. And they were aware of the boundaries, or it could be as simple as uh, a core agent or even a state uh, environmental agency agents driving on their way home from work and they see, you know, some kind of disturbance going on and there doesn't seem to be silt fence around it, or, or maybe they're curious and want to check out the building permits and they can see that it's wet. You know, I mean, they could, they could call somebody at work or, or tip off the core. Um, I mean, you know, these are just realities that you never really know where it could come from, but it's definitely good to cover your bases prior to, so you don't have to worry about that. Cause I know it's not cheap <laughs> if uh, yeah. with enforcement actions I've heard, uh, maybe Jim, you know, the numbers, but it's something where it's like, it's, it's a, it's a set dollar amount per acreage per day of some impacts that have to be removed. Yeah, that's the typical. I think it varies between states and municipalities, but it's definitely it's uh, typically a per day um, fine until you can get things resolved. And kind of to follow up on what Wade was saying, you know, it is difficult for the agencies when there are projects that are happening that they don't know about. They kind of almost need to stumble upon them. Um, in order to find out that there's a, a violation going on. It's a little bit easier when they do have permitted projects because they can go on a site and tell you, hey, you're not doing this erosion control properly, or you, you've got a little bit more stream impact than you said you were going to. And they're, I wouldn't say lenient, but they're much more, um, they're much more willing to work with you if you already have those permits in place than if you don't. We have actually a lot of landowners in um, our Durham office where we will get approached because they've gotten a notice of violation from either the state or federal agencies, and they have to basically stop their projects and go through this whole process. And you have to resolve the notice of violation before you can proceed. And sometimes it takes a while. Um, and, uh, it, it definitely hinders a project's schedule if you're trying to develop and you kind of get a little antsy and go and start grading ahead of time or starting installing structures before you get your permits. Because if they um, see that, then that, that can complicate things and cause problems. Oh yeah. Well, so, so now I'm curious. So somebody calls in or, and I, I don't know if this is necessarily a thing that is, is quantifiable. Right. But like, what's the average cost to a landowner to sort of like at the at the different stages to work with a company like yours? And it, and it matters in terms of like when a buyer is trying to assess what their overall overhead might be in purchasing a property or what a buyer has to consider or a store, sorry, what a seller has to consider either if they don't want to do the prep work and they want to rely on the buyer to come in and the buyer is going to look at that as part of their overhead into the, into the land or the seller before they're prepping to do the property as they're doing their cost analysis what's sort of the, like, and I'm, and let's maybe take it in stages. Like what is, what is sort of, you know, the cost of working with a team like yours in the preliminary research where you're making suggestions and then what's the cost of like when you're doing an actual assessment where you're going through the permitting? Well, I mean, if we, if we get um, asked to, to, to 
survey or review a, a property or a, a set of parcels for that if someone's interested in purchasing um, or selling we the cost is pretty it's dependent on the acreage of the site that we have to assess um, but if it's say a 10 or 15 acre property to start with for instance uh, the cost is pretty low we usually our approach is to do like an like environmental resources like assessment where we kind of go on site um, kind of give a preliminary review of like whether or not there's wetland streams, whether or not you have protected species habitat and kind of um, package that up into mapping and a memo that can go to the seller or the potential buyer. It just gives them an idea of what's on site. Um, they can go um, more in detail if they want. Like sometimes some people want to know, if, you know, where the seasonal high water table is on a property to see um, if that's going to affect what they're going to build. And we can pull in uh, licensed soil scientists to assist with that. But overall, I think when they're looking for that high level, um, information it's a pretty um inexpensive per I, I can't give an exact number but i would say per acre it's a pretty inexpensive cost comparative to if you um waited and had an issue with it later on um as the process goes on and we need to have more correspondence with the agencies and stuff you know there's different cost points where we'd have to put in like a, a jurisdictional delineation package uh, to the agency so they can um, concur or have us change our wetland delineations or our stream calls. And then, then you get down farther on to do you need protected species that costs a little bit more than environmental permitting. Um, so the, the, the kind of way, the kind of um, distribution of costs is it's pretty inexpensive to start. You've got a pretty, it's not a super expensive, but uh, the the most cost is probably from when you start coordinating with the agencies until you've got everything set for permitting and then permitting is pretty straightforward um in terms of the application process depending on the type of permit <laughs> right right um, for a nationwide permit it's pretty it's not that expensive individual permits take a lot more effort got you and then that's that's sort of the the point, right? Is by working with a uh, you know an organization like yours up front, and working with a relatively inexpensive price, you're avoiding potential monstrous costs if you say put in a road before permit, or you don't talk to a, an organization like yours before you start making your plans, and then you find out you have to change your plans, or you've got to move a road, or you know, now you've got to do a whole bunch of things before you get your permit and you have to plan for it. it you're saving money by investing that little bit up front, right? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, you know, especially with our company, because um, we do have hydraulic engineers and traffic engineers that we can coordinate with, our, um, our advisory capacity kind of goes a little bit beyond even just the natural resources aspects of projects. Like, you know, even in something as simple as a driveway, you're likely going to need a driveway permit from the Department of Transportation to tie into their road. So knowing all that information and being having our traffic engineers that we can talk to, we can actually give them information above and beyond just the natural systems aspect. So knowing all that ahead of time, I think, is definitely, definitely valuable. And um, it definitely saves uh, money especially when you can consolidate all those efforts into one contract versus having to do a bunch of supplements. I think when you do the supplements, it kind of balloons the price a little bit because you've, you end up like if you have an initial contract that had just says like one level of project coordination, but each of these supplements has its own project coordination, you get a little bit of a, 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 a 
an increase in cost just because of um, having to do all that separately. Right. Which, you know, it's, it, they're all good points of information to bring up. And like, I'm really glad you brought up the driveways, right? Cause I, if I buy, you know, a blank piece of land and, you know, vacant land there, it, wherever I'm buying, it doesn't matter whether it's North Carolina or, or Illinois, right. Is if I get something like that and is that a buzzing going on? Yeah. Jim, you get a call. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was, I was staring at my sound. Like what is good? What happened yeah, to my I heard it too. All right, good. I'm glad somebody. Sorry asked. about that. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, so if if somebody buys vacant land and it doesn't matter where it is, just to, you know, before you get your your bulldozer out or an excavator, you call up somebody down the street to put some gravel in and make your driveway. Like there's driveway permitting, and I, I know a lot of people know this stuff, but it's good to bring it up for the people that don't. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy things to skip over, and you could find out you put your driveway in the wrong place. Now you got to relocate it. Yeah, and, and make sure and make sure you have the right size pipe going underneath it so it ties into the stormwater properly so you don't impact streams down slope of your driveway. Yeah, it all it all kind of ties in together. So the key is you want to call up an engineering group like you guys to come in and review it first and let someone know how they can avoid potential pitfalls before they ever get into it and you're just saving them a hassle, right? Yeah, no, I definitely think there's there's strong benefits to do that. I mean, you definitely um, when you're looking for a firm to to do the work for you, it's good to have as many disciplines as possible available in the firm, obviously, because um, they can all work internally together and, and kind of expedite things and work more efficiently. Or at, at the very least, know that you have a firm that has subcontractors that they are well experienced with and work well together with. So they have that same level of efficiency. Uh, I think those are the the um, kind of ideal aspects that you kind of need to to look out for when you're looking for a firm to do the work uh, like this for you. All right. Well, Hey, I, I had you guys, uh, you guys budgeted for, for an hour here and I don't want to, uh, take away from your work day. Cause I know we all got jobs. Um, but, uh, I just want to express some, some appreciation here. Thank you both for, for spending the time here with today to talk to me. Um, Wade, James, I want to give you an opportunity to, you know, Tell us how to get a hold of Three Oaks Engineering and and sort of your your work area and uh, I want to get throw down a plug. Wait, do you want me to do this? Uh, yeah, you can start and I'll. I'll... <laughs> uh, so if you uh, if you want to get in touch with Three Oaks Engineering, we have a, our website is threeoaksengineering.com. Our contact information is on the website. And it lists the whole suite of disciplines that we cover. Um, and like I had said earlier, anywhere from um, planning and planning to traffic engineering, hydraulic engineering, uh, wetland and stream delineations. We also do protected species surveys, environmental compliance on, um, on properties as well. And we also uh, do environmental permitting. So um, that's the best way to get in touch with us. Uh, we cover North Carolina, South Carolina. We also do work in Georgia and Virginia as well. Uh, so we, we cover a wide range of the Southeast, uh, with our services. Excellent. And that kind of takes in what you were talking about of look for a lot of services under one roof, right? Yes. Yes. That, that definitely makes it much more efficient. Yeah. Time saving and money saving component. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, I, and I'd like to plug uh, a success that we've had actually with national land realty, um, a couple of years ago, working with Nick Artis. Uh, just as an example that touches on, you know, like the 
the money savings as well as earnings potential that could happen when you kind of get ahead of it and plan and work with a firm like us, you know, when you're, uh, you know, approaching this, a uh, selling of a property, uh, it was, a, a about a 94 acre parcel, uh, towards Myrtle beach in South Carolina. And, you know, it's listed on national land, the wetlands layer that you turn on showed the whole almost 90% of the thing is as wetland area. And so obviously the, the, the track wasn't very desirable to commercial developers that may be wanting to put like a, I think they're kind of targeting a trucking or shipment facility possibly because it's near a highway. And, you know, if there's like, whoa, there's a lot of wetlands here, you know, what do I do with this? Why would I want to buy this if it's so costly? So what the private owner had us do was he reached out to Nick and Nick reached out to me and we'd gone out and done, you know, that cursory level, uh, natural resources assessment. Uh, you know, we were just kind of told them what was present and what our opinion was. And we went out there and actually, you know, narrowed it down to a, a very, uh, minuscule amount of wetlands on the property. The, the wetlands layer, you know, is, is used off of remote sense data. You know, it's not on the ground delineation of things. And so, there were canals near the property that affected the hydrology and, and all these other factors that led to where it was not near as wet as what the national lands listing had it as. And so it, it ended up to where this, you know, clients having a much easier time with selling this property. It, it's pulling in more money for him. And, um, I, I believe it was under contract recently. I'm not sure where it's ended up, but you know, that's, that's just a, a good success story that we've had paired together with national land. That is a great story. And I I love how we went full circle there. We, I think we started out talking about, you know, one of Nick Artis's pieces of advice there. He probably learned it from you guys as far as doing your due diligence first. And that's that's a good national land cup. I like that. Yes. Courtesy of Nick Artis. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Hey, uh, thank you both for spending some time here and providing um, some terrific value for landowners, prospective landowners, commercial developers, Um, It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This concludes episode number 48 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing wetlands and environmental impact with James Mason and Wade Biltoff from Three Oaks Engineering out of North and South Carolina. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. 